Well, you don't have to be a Christian very long before you'll start to see just how radical and countercultural the teachings of Jesus can be. I mean, consider just the verse that we saw earlier on during communion in Philippians chapter 2, where we see that Jesus, although he is God, did not cling tightly to his glory and his identity in heaven, he allowed certain characteristics and attributes to be shrouded. He set aside his preferences in order to serve others. And not only that, but he then calls us, his disciples, to follow his example of putting the needs of others before our preferences our creature comforts, our self-expressions, and the like. Unbelievably countercultural when you take that and contrast it with the constant message that we receive from culture day in and day out. That message of culture, which is this. Be yourself, express yourself, and suit yourself. I mean, whether you're old or young, it doesn't matter. Everywhere you look, that is the message we are bombarded with by culture. Unapologetically, be yourself, suit yourself, and express yourself. Look at a few samples that I found recently on social media that were in this spirit or vein. How about this first one on the screen here? Be yourself, Everyone else is already taken. How about this second example here? If they don't like you for being yourself, be yourself even more. Yeah. How about the next one here? Be yourself no matter what they say. Again, let's look at the next example. The bravest thing you can be is yourself. And then fifth and finally here, the short but common phrase that I hear all the time, you do you. In other words, suit yourself, express yourself, be yourself unapologetically. And to be sure, authenticity, accurately representing yourself, and a healthy level of individuality, these are all good things. However, When this is not kept in check by the word of God, it can overtake even the most mature Christians among us. And I believe this you-do-you thinking, suit yourself, express yourself, be yourself way of living, oftentimes sabotages our evangelism and undermines the gospel. Today, Paul's example And 1 Corinthians chapter 9 will challenge us to rediscover what the greatest missionary the church has ever produced understood about how to reach the maximum amount of people with the gospel. I want to invite you at this time, if you have your Bible or a device, to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 19 through 23. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23 says this. 
For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Yes, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. First, I want to invite you to turn your attention to verse 20, where the Apostle Paul says this, to the Jews I became as a Jew. And here we have the most successful missionary, the most effective evangelist that has ever lived, giving us a bit of an insider tip. He's giving us a pro tip here. And essentially, the Apostle Paul simply says this, whenever possible, the Apostle Paul would make adjustments, accommodations, and tweaks to how he presented himself in order to reach the lost with the gospel. You see, when Paul was going to hang out with the Jewish person and grab a cup of coffee or lunch, or before he was planning a missionary journey to share the good news of Jesus the Messiah with a mostly Jewish audience, this is how he conducted himself. He would abstain from certain customs and certain practices that would have needlessly offended the Jewish people and, and he participated in certain customs and practices in order to build rapport with the Jewish people. And we may think, well, what would that look like practically? How would the Apostle Paul actually implement this idea of becoming like a Jew in order to reach the Jews? And just to kind of give us a for instance, I want to suggest three ways in which the Apostle Paul likely, if not certainly, would make certain adjustments in order to become like a Jew to reach the Jews. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 19, we find one of many, many commands that God gave the Jewish people under the Old Covenant. One thing that's important to note is many of the laws you read about in the Old Testament were not universal commands for every single person. Some of them were uniquely given to the Jewish people. And the instances we're going to see, the three today, all fall into that category. But in Leviticus 19.19, 19, God giving commands to the Jewish people living in the land of Israel under the Old Covenant says at the tail end of this verse in 19, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. In other words, the Jewish people were to look differently and they were to only wear garments that had one kind of material or fabric. Well, for the Apostle Paul, I don't know how he typically dressed, but say at times he wore poly blend clothing, I think that meant for him before he was going on a missionary journey, when he was packing his suitcase, he would make sure to pack garments that were only made of one kind of material. He's wanting to try and build bridges to the people that he's trying to reach 
with the gospel. Or consider this, Leviticus 19.27, a command given to Jewish men under the Old Covenant. Leviticus 19.27, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Again, I don't know how the Apostle Paul typically groomed and took care of his facial hair, but let's just say, for instance, he liked to be clean-shaven on occasion. Well, in order to be like the Jews, in order to reach the Jews, I believe the Apostle Paul, prior to a missionary journey, would have allowed the sides of his beard to grow out. Why? Because it was a sign of devotion to the God of Israel. It was a sign of reverence, and it was a way to build a bridge to the person he was trying to reach with the good news of Jesus. Or how about this, finally? Leviticus chapter 11, we see certain dietary laws that are given to the Jewish people. Leviticus 11, verse 1, says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and choose the cud. In other words, the Jewish people, under the law of Moses and the Old Covenant, were given certain dietary restrictions. And they were allowed to eat land animals if they met these two qualifications. If they only met one, they were not to eat them. This means they could have beef, they could have lamb, but it meant that the Jewish people would not eat pork because it was forbidden under the Old Covenant. You see in verse 9 in Leviticus 11, a similar command. Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. Again, the Jewish people needed to eat animals that had fins and scales if they lived in water, which meant no shellfish. Why do I say all this? I say all this because I believe the Apostle Paul quite clearly, when he would go to a restaurant, let's say, with a Jewish co-worker, no matter how much he loved a bacon cheeseburger or maybe like me, loved shrimp and grits, he didn't order it at the restaurant because he didn't want to offend the Jewish person that he was trying to build a bridge to in order to share the gospel. Now, it is important to point out Paul did not have to do this. I mean, you can go back to the first verse we read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, and he says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. In other words, the apostle Paul, living under the new covenant, recognized that there were not universal dietary restrictions or New Testament commands about beard length or different kinds of garments. But nevertheless, Paul, in great love and humility, condescended and made certain strategic adjustments and accommodations in order to become like a Jew in order to reach the Jews. We see much the same thing in Paul's approach to Gentiles, that is, the non-Jewish people. Look at verse 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. In other words, those outside the law of Moses, people that are not coming from a Jewish background or faith. To those kinds of people, he became like them. And then he says, parenthetically, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of of Christ. And what Paul is saying here is in the same way that he would make these adjustments in order to build bridges to the Jewish people and remove barriers, when he was having lunch with a Greek coworker, right, he would make the same kinds of strategic adjustments and modifications in order to not needlessly offend them. Why? So he could reach them with the gospel. 
Now, we should point out there are limitations to this. Paul says himself in verse 21 in that parenthetical comment, while he makes all these adjustments to try and get the gospel to people without raising offenses needlessly, he says the following in verse 21, speaking of himself, he says, he's not outside the law of God, but rather under the law of Christ. In other words, Paul was willing to make whatever adjustments or accommodations were necessary to connect with somebody for the sake of evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus, but the one thing he would not do is sin. He would not violate what Christ commanded in the New Testament. But hey, short of sin, Paul was willing to make any adjustment, any accommodation, any modification in order to build bridges and remove barriers. At this point, if you're like me, when I was really digging into this text, I kind of found myself wondering, Paul, why are you going to all these lengths? Why are you bending over backwards and jumping through all these hoops and trying to study the culture and understand all these ways in which people can be offended? Why are you going through all of that? Paul, don't you know that it's just our job to be the messengers? I mean, after all, Romans chapter 1 the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's God's business, saving people. We just need to be messengers that are faithful and deliver the message. John, we read in John, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Paul, you don't need to jump through all these hoops and try and be winsome and strategic. Just get them the gospel. That's all we're required to do. But notice that Paul anchors all these adjustments he makes in the way he goes about interacting with people. He anchors all of that in the gospel. Look at verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul saying, of all these adjustments I make to reach the Jewish people and all these adjustments I make to reach Greek people or non-Jewish people, let me tell you my motivation. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. In other words, Paul sees no contradiction there. He says, I'm making all these adjustments to not put a hindrance before the gospel. And verse 23 seems to pretty clearly indicate that the apostle Paul seemed to believe that there is a connection between the way in which he approached people and the way they responded to the gospel. He believed there was a relationship between how he went about sharing the gospel and connecting with someone and someone's likelihood to respond to the gospel. And we can see that idea in other places in Scripture as well. We don't have time for it now, but in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, there's this mind-blowing verse. In Titus 2.10, it actually says this about Christians. Speaking to Christians, it says the following. Our works, our deeds can adorn the gospel. In other words, the way in which we conduct ourselves can make the gospel more attractive, more appealing, and adorn it. And of course, unfortunately, the flip side of that is also true. Our actions, if not done in love, can make the gospel less attractive and less appealing. But what is Paul really here? I mean, is he just some blank canvas with no identity? Just kind of like some chameleon that changes his shape to fit in with one group of people and changes to fit in with another group of people? Is he like some kind of sleazy salesman that'll just say whatever he needs to say 
in order to make a buck? Well, both the chameleon and the salesman are motivated by self-interest. You know, the chameleon, that person that does whatever needs to be done in order to fit in and kind of blend in, that's usually done out of a drive to be accepted and approved by others. And a sleazy salesman that'll lie and fudge the numbers and do whatever he needs to do to make a sale, that's motivated by greed. No, Paul's motivations here are not greed or selfishness. They're a complete opposite. Paul is motivated here simply by love. I think a better way for us to conceptualize what Paul is doing here is to use your imaginations for a moment with me and imagine a very rugged father, a man's man, an outdoorsy kind of father, one with a long beard and a well-worn face, calluses on his hands, someone that lives to be outdoors. Imagine that kind of a father coming home from a long day's work, exhausted, filthy, and he enters into his house. He goes to the bedroom door of his little four-year-old daughter, and he kind of knocks on the door, and his little daughter opens the door and says, hey, Daddy, I'm playing Barbies. Do you want to come in and play with me? And this father in great love and humility, condescends, and he squats down and gets on the floor and plays Barbies in order to show love, to enter into the world of, and to connect with his beloved daughter. That is what Paul is doing. What about us? It's 2019, it's almost 2020, which is hard to believe. How can we practically implement this into our lives? How can we live this out? How can we make our evangelism more effective and stop sabotaging the gospel? Well, I want to suggest two points of application for us to live this truth out in our lives. First is this. For the sake of the gospel, become a lifelong student of culture. You see, for the Apostle Paul, what he ate, how he presented himself, what he brought up in conversation, what he left out of conversation, all of these things were careful calculations intended to build bridges and remove barriers to the person he was sharing Christ with. Before Paul would meet with a non-believer, he would think to himself, what do they value? How do they think? What might needlessly offend them? What would be the most persuasive approach I can conceive of? What might be a non-persuasive approach? And he would ask himself these questions out of love and a desire to reach them with the gospel. Simply put, Paul understood that different bait are required to catch different fish. You know, one kind of bait you may use and it catches a particular kind of fish, but if you try and use that same bait to catch a different fish, it might be too large and scare it off or it might not have any uh, appeal to a different kind of fish. Well, listen, Paul understood that different fish were going to require different kinds of bait. And the reason the Apostle Paul was able to successfully share the gospel with all 
all different kinds of people from all these different walks of life was because he understood the culture and the worldview and the tribe of the person he was trying to reach with the gospel. Now, we've seen the Apostle Paul say to the Jews, he became like a Jew to reach the Jews, and to those not under the law, he became like those not under the law in order to reach them. But I want to see this in action. We're going to look at Acts chapter 17, and we're going to see two examples of the Apostle Paul actually living these truths out right before our eyes. So in Acts chapter 17, we're going to see this to a Jewish audience and to a non-Jewish audience. We'll start with Acts 17, 1 through 3. It says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned from them with the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Let's look ahead in verse 22 and see Paul reaching a different audience, a non-Jewish audience. He says this in verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You see, in both these examples, whether Paul's going to a Jewish audience in a synagogue or to a bunch of pagan Greeks that are worshiping all these different kinds of idols, Paul does the same four things to live this truth out. First, Paul goes to them. Second, Paul minimizes differences. Third, Paul builds on common ground. And fourth, Paul shares the gospel. See, Paul doesn't expect them to come to him. No, Paul goes to the synagogue. Paul goes to the Areopagus. Paul is faithful to Jesus' command to evangelize the whole world, and he goes to them. But then once he goes to them, he minimizes differences. Notice in verses 1 through 3, he doesn't wag his finger at the Jewish people in the synagogues and say, your leaders crucified the Son of God. You really missed him in the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't go to the Greek audience at the Areopagus and say, look at all of these idols. You're a bunch of polytheistic pagans. What are you doing? No. He kind of minimizes those differences, and then in this third step, you see he builds upon common ground. With the Jewish people, he used the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, to prove that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah. And look what he does with the non-Jewish audience at the Areopagus. He actually uses their idolatry as a springboard to talk to them 
about the true God, the God of Israel and Christ. And he even goes so far in verse 28 as to quote their own pagan poets and pagan philosophers. Well, how was Paul able to do this? How was he able to be this versatile to reach these worlds apart, different kinds of people? Well, evidently, Paul was a very serious student of culture, and he exposed himself to worldviews beyond that of his own. You know, missionaries do this all the time. Missionaries learn a new language, a way of dressing, uh, different diets, different manners and customs, they learn all these different aspects of a culture. Then they go and bring the good news of Jesus. I think we would do well to follow the Apostle Paul's example and follow the example of the missionaries and get serious about understanding our culture to reach the culture with the gospel. Well, how do we do that? Simply put, we need to give ourselves a little exposure to the culture. Let me give you a few examples of how I do this. Number one, for about 20 minutes, every once in a blue moon, watch the news network you hate the most. <laughs> Put it on and do your best to stomach it just to be exposed to different ways of thinking to help you understand values, beliefs, and ethics in order to be better suited to reach them with the gospel. Or how about this? Occasionally, here and there, kind of graze and read a blog or perhaps read an article about what's trending in culture, even if it's idiotic. <laughs> if you do that, you might be surprised at how that may set you up to be able to connect with people you otherwise wouldn't be able to. Or perhaps, if appropriate, Cut on a Netflix show or a network show or a prime video show every now and again just to see what some of the most watched shows have as far as values go, if appropriate. Listen, we do not need to become full-time anthropologists or missiologists to follow Paul's example here. You would be amazed at how far just occasionally a little exposure to the culture would go and enabling you to build bridges with people and remove barriers. For the sake of the gospel, become a lifelong student of culture. And then finally, for the sake of the gospel, this is hard to receive, but for the sake of the gospel, save your soapbox for a select few. Well, what do I mean by soapbox? I'm gonna define soapbox this way. Anything other than Jesus that you're fanatical about. Anything other than Jesus that you're fanatical about, and of course that may beg the question and you go, well how do I know if I'm fanatical or not? I've got a really helpful quote from Winston Churchill we're gonna put up here. Winston Churchill said this, a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. <laughs> we know any, anybody know any fanatics? I'm putting my hand up. No, no one, just me, a few of you. Listen, anything we're fanatical about other than Jesus is one of these soapboxes that I believe for the sake of the gospel we would do well to save for a select few. I'll give you an example of some soapboxes I see commonly among Christians. Political convictions. Economic 
convictions, educational convictions, parenting convictions, nutritional and dietary convictions. Now, I want to be clear here. I am not saying you can't have views on these kinds of issues. Not at all. Have views. Have strong views. Be fully convinced in your own mind. But I want to urge you to save that soapbox for a select few. Save it for the appropriate audience. Romans chapter 14 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture because in it, Paul takes a whole chapter and teaches us practically how Christians can have harmony even though we have differing views on many disputable matters. And listen to this very practical advice he gives to help preserve harmony in Romans 14, 22. He says this, the faith that you have, in other words, your convictions and beliefs on these soapbox issues, the faith that you have Keep between yourself and God. Now, I don't believe that means we can never discuss them with anyone, but it certainly means we shouldn't discuss it with everyone. We need to use a lot more discretion and wisdom in where we share these soapbox points of view. But I do believe there are appropriate, healthy places for us to let it all hang out in an unfiltered way. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. In other words, what we're saying, what we are filtering or not filtering, needs to be informed by how it will bless and build up others and we need to save certain conversations and topics for the appropriate occasion. And listen, this is not hypocrisy or duplicity. Um, I'm married. There's about two people that see me naked. It's my wife and my doctor. There are sides of us that not everyone should see. Amen? We need to have a lot more discretion if we're wanting to reach as many people as possible with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33 says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense, and there's three groups listed here. Give no offense to the Jewish people that are not Christians, the non-Jewish people that are not Christians, and the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Or how about when Jesus puts it this succinctly in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, telling his disciples, I'm sending you to evangelize the whole world, and this is the way you should go about it. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You know, Serpents tend to blend in. They don't draw unwanted attention to themselves. They keep a low profile. And that's the way in which Jesus says we are to go into the world. And sometimes I look at the way Christians interact, and you would think Jesus would have said, I want you to be as ravenous as a wolf and as offensive as a skunk. Go into the world. But that's not what he says. He says we're to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, commenting on this teaching of Jesus 
The pastor, John MacArthur, uh, says the following. I love this. He says, the basic idea is that of saying the right things at the right time and place, of having a sense of propriety and appropriateness, and of trying to discover the best means to achieve the highest goal. It's neither wise nor loving to be needlessly accusatory or inflammatory. When the Pharisees attempted to trap Jesus into either defending or condemning the Roman government by asking him about paying taxes to Caesar, he did not take the occasion to vilify Caesar or the Roman government, vile, debauched, unjust, and ungodly as they were. And I love how he concludes, it is neither brave nor wise, neither spiritual nor loving, to needlessly incite anger or court trouble. You know, I was thinking about this idea of soapboxes earlier on this year. I was at a ministry conference, and there was about 200 of us in a breakout session, and the speaker there was kind of encouraging all these ministers to be as wise as serpent and as innocent as doves, to use discretion strategically for the sake of the gospel. And he illustrated just how divisive these soapbox issues have become by asking two questions. He asked about 200 of us, hey, raise your hand if you know anyone who is married across religious lines. And about a third of the room raised their hand. Many people in there had known relatives or friends or somebody who had married across religious lines. And then he asked this follow-up question. He said, okay, now raise your hand if you know anyone, anyone, who is married across political lines. And there were 200 of us in this room and not a single hand went up. You see, when we wear these kind of tribal identities outside of our identity in Christ on our sleeve and when we lead with these soapbox issues, all we're doing is putting a wedge between ourselves and those that are dying in their sins, we are making it harder to share the gospel, harder to connect them to the living God. One practical point here, I think most Christians, perhaps not all, but most Christians would do well to be particularly careful about their soapbox on social media. And the reason I say that is social media, by definition, is public and pretty permanent. I believe we lose the ability to connect with different kinds of people from different walks of life and practice the versatility that Paul did if we will not save our soapbox for a select few. In closing here, I want to be very, very clear the point of this passage is not some little moral about political correctness. It's not a nice little lesson for us to just fit in with culture for the sake of fitting in with culture or to play patty cake with the world. No, for the Apostle of Paul and for us that are following Jesus, we have a real agenda here, and it's not simply fitting in with the culture. A few weeks ago, I was talking to Pam Stanley, who's over our students here at Latham, and we were talking through this idea of how the Apostle Paul, when he would go to a synagogue or go to a Greek setting like we saw in Acts 17, would do those four things. 
He'd go to them, he'd minimize differences, he'd build on common ground, and he'd get to the gospel. And she had a very insightful comment. Pam said this. She said, when I look at young people and students in particular, they're great about the first three. We'll put them back up here on the screen. She said that when it comes to young people going to people that are lost, downplaying differences, building on common ground, oh man, they're great about that. But sadly, far too often, young people don't actually get to the point of all of this, which is to share the good news of Jesus with a dying and lost friend or coworker or relative. I thought it was very insightful, and I said in reply, well, my observation dealing with more adults is I think a lot of Christians are very comfortable and bold with sharing the gospel Number four, man, they've got that down. They're bold. They're willing to take some heat for the gospel. But oftentimes, a lot of the older people, more adults, are not willing to go to the culture to study it, to minimize differences, and to build on common ground. In both cases, if we're only doing one through three or just jumping to four, I think it has the same impact which is very, very little compared to what the impact could be. I think we sabotage our evangelism and undermine the gospel when we just do the first three steps that Paul did and never actually get to the gospel or present the gospel in a way that can't really readily be heard or received. In closing, I just want to say this. If we are serious about making more and better disciples, if we are serious about reaching the culture for Christ, if we are serious about the evangelization of the world, then we must follow the example of the most successful evangelist and missionary that the church has ever produced, who for the sake of the gospel became all things to all men that he might save as many as possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Paul's example. We thank you that he not only taught the most effective way to get the gospel to people in a way they could hear it, but he lived it out. He didn't insist on his own self-expressions or preferences, but rather in great humility and love, he condescended in order to become all things to all men. God, I ask that you would help us as a church, as Grace Fellowship in the Capital District, I pray that every day, by your grace and by your power, we would grow in being wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, that you would help us, like Paul, like the missionaries, to study the culture to reach the culture, to save our soapbox for a select few, and to put you in your mission of making disciples of all nations above everything else in our life.
We pray this dependent on your spirit to give us strength. In Christ's name, amen.